The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're down to about verse 16. Now, there are a few things you never hear in church. I want to tell you what some of them are. Number one, and where's... It's my turn. Hey, it's my turn to sit in the front pew. Number two thing you never hear in churches, I was so enthralled I never noticed your sermon went 30 minutes overtime. Three, I don't know if this applies to anyone here. Personally, I find witnessing much more enjoyable than golf. Number four, I've decided to give our church the $500 a month I used to send to TV evangelists. Let's see, number five. I love it when we sing hymns I've never heard before. Number six, since we're all here, let's start the service early. And number seven, my personal favorite is, Pastor, we'd like to send you to a Bible seminar in the Bahamas for two weeks. Just some things we never hear in church yet. Okay, we're in our study of Galatians and we need to take a few moments to orient ourselves. We've had a long week and we have sort of digressed a little bit from the flow of the passage. And that's because it's important at times to back off from a passage and take some time to get a frame of reference, to understand the dynamics of the message. Now, as we approach verse 16 of chapter 2, we have taken some time to understand uh, or to look at some background doctrine. The reason we're doing this is that the subject from verse 16 to verse 21 is the subject of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, a critical subject for all of us to understand. I'm amazed at how few believers truly understand the doctrine of justification by faith. It is a doctrine that is severely under attack today uh, from within the evangelical groups and is not understood clearly even at the seminary level because Christians have a problem with other Christians who don't uh, seem to live the way they think they ought to live and who go into moral failure or spiritual failure and live a life not any different from any unbeliever, in fact sometimes much worse than unbelievers and saying that those are still believers and that they were, uh, were truly saved. So we have to understand a lot of different concepts in order to be able to appreciate the depth of this particular verse. So let's back up a minute and understand the flow of what's happening in Galatians chapter 2. Four points of review. First of all, in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Paul talks about his trip to Jerusalem. This is his second trip to Jerusalem to make sure that there was no conflict over the issue of Gentile inclusion in the gospel. He wants to make sure that when he is teaching the gospel of free grace, faith alone in Christ alone, 
that that go applies equally to Jew and Gentile and that there's not some point of conflict with what the apostles in Jerusalem are teaching. To test the issue and to make sure that everything, the, the critical issues were focused on, he took with him Titus. Titus was a Gentile who was not circumcised. So the issue was whether or not Gentiles had to uh, apply the Mosaic law to their own lives before they would be included in salvation. And what we learn from that is that he, the point he is making is that not even Titus, who's an uncircumcised Gentile, was required to be circumcised and come in under the law. So the issue is that at that particular time, the apostles in Jerusalem all understood the principle that the Mosaic law is not binding to Gentiles anymore. Point number two. Prior to this event, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, God had revealed the dynamics of the change to Peter in a vision um, in Acts chapter 10. And we looked at that and we saw how God had uh, given Peter this vision where a tablecloth came down from heaven. Included on that tablecloth were all manner of animals and food that had been designated both clean and unclean under the Mosaic law. And God said, Peter, take and eat. Peter says, no, Lord, I've never let unclean things touch my lips. And God said, Peter, take and eat. What I have made clean, you can eat. Finally, Peter got the point after the third time. Then he went to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea, uh, explained the gospel to them. They trusted the Lord. And Gentiles experienced what's called the Gentile Pentecost as the Holy Spirit uh, indwelt them and filled them. And they spoke in tongues, demonstrating that what was happening with the Gentiles was identical with what happened in Jerusalem and that the church was united uh, as a result of this ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So Peter then, at that point, understands the issue that the Mosaic Law is no longer valid. He never mentions it when he's explaining the gospel to Cornelius, to the Gentiles. Point number three, Peter then returns uh, to Jerusalem where he came under attack by the believers there for going and eating with the Gentiles, which was a violation of the Mosaic Law. But Peter showed his spiritual courage at that point. He held his ground. He explained everything that had happened and he won them over. So they all agreed with him. Point number four, now after Paul's first or second trip to Jerusalem, he goes back to Antioch to the church there, and then Peter travels up to Antioch to see how things are going. And when certain men from Jerusalem came up who were legalists, Peter lost his spiritual courage, is out of fellowship. He's operating on the sin nature. He's yielding to the pressure of these legalists from Jerusalem, and he becomes a hypocrite. It is dividing the church, and the Apostle Paul confronts him with the issue of grace in verses 11 through the end of the chapter. All of this is Paul's confrontation with Peter. He just, con he just uh, confronts him right in front of everybody. This isn't private, it's public, because everybody knows the issue, and it's dividing the church. Now, we have answered the question in the past two weeks, what was behind this shift away from the Mosaic Law? Why is there this new emphasis on the equal inclusion of the Gentiles apart from any requirements of legal obedience? In order to do that and to go through that, we had to focus on some background study. First of all, we had to see the limitations of the Mosaic Law. Many Christians today do not understand the purpose of the Mosaic Law. The purpose of the Mosaic Law was not to bring people to salvation and it was not the manifestation, although it included doctrines related to the spiritual life in the Old Testament, remember the entire Mosaic Law was the constitution, analogous to our constitution, of the nation Israel. Therefore, it was for both believer and unbeliever alike. 
It was not something that was related specifically for believers. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant we saw last week was a temporary covenant. We took the time to study various covenants, and we saw that God has divided human history into dispensations. These are periods of time in which God administers... My battery's going dead? They just put a new one in. Yes, I'm dead. Last week we saw that it is by means of covenants that God changes the dispensation. A dispensation comes from the the word dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which literally means house law. Oikonomos. Listen to how it sounds. It is comparable. It is really the source of our English word economy. Oikonomos. It means an administration, a way of doing things. The house law. And God, while certain things continue the same throughout all the ages, such as salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, certain other things change. And they change as a result of divine revelation given in covenants. You have the initial covenant in Eden, followed by the Adamic covenant after the fall, which shifts the dispensation from human perfection to conscience. Then you have the Noahic covenant, which shifts from conscience to the um, dispensation of civil government. During this entire time, we're in the age of the Gentiles. There are no Jews. Gentiles fail after the Tower of Babel. Uh, Abraham is called as an individual, and God promises that he would make from him a unique nation, and he will use that nation for his missionary purposes to communicate the gospel to the entire human race. The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for all subsequent covenants. There's the... uh, uh, To explain that in more detail, we've seen that there was the land covenant, which related to the promise of land in the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which expanded the section on the seed and the promise uh, of the Abrahamic covenant related to the seed, and then the new covenant, which relates to spiritual blessing to all mankind, Jew and Gentile, and that's explained in Jeremiah 31. The Abrahamic covenant is a, an unconditional or permanent covenant. It was not based at all on any aspect of human behavior, but was freely given by God to Israel. Therefore, those uh, promises that have not been fulfilled yet will be fulfilled in the future. But the Mosaic Covenant is different. It was given to Israel as a temporary covenant for the uh, administration of the theocratic kingdom and looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. So that once the Messiah came, he would fulfill the law and that would be the end of the Mosaic Law. And this brings us to a doctrine we looked at over the last uh, several weeks on the doctrine of the Mosaic Law and spirituality. I've expanded these points somewhat, so we're going to go over it again. Point number one, Christ fulfilled the law. Important to understand this. Very few people do. This is the difference, one of the major divisions in uh, between us and many, many other Christians There was a failure at the time of the Protestant Reformation to recognize that the Mosaic Law was no longer mandatory in the church age uh, so that morality is based on, uh, spirituality and morality are confused and based on legal obedience. Many Protestant denominations have therefore fallen away and don't have a clue as to how to live the spiritual life because they're trying to do it on the basis of human effort. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, 
Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that is the aorist active infinitive of plerao, which means to complete something or to fulfill. So all the aspects of the Mosaic law pointed to Jesus Christ. The first section of the Mosaic law, which we know as the Ten Commandments, uh, were fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he lived a perfect life on the earth. He did not violate any of those mandates, demonstrating that he was perfect humanity. The second section of the Mosaic Law relates to spiritual issues, the sacrifices and offerings which uh, foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled that through his life and his death on the cross. The third section of the law relates to all of the uh, mandates for day-to-day life, all the mandates related to uh, civil obedience, and Jesus Christ fulfilled that by observing it perfectly, even though he violated uh, the human traditions that the Pharisees had built up around it, Jesus fulfilled it completely. Because he fulfilled the law, he w- demonstrated that he was qualified to go to the cross and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So point number one, Christ fulfilled the law in every aspect of his life and his death. Point number two is the conclusion. Because Christ fulfilled the law, he is said to be the end of the law for believers. Therefore, believers in the church age are not under the Mosaic law. We find this in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Very important passage. You should have it underlined in your Bible, and I want to turn there to look at it and exegete it very briefly this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end is from a Greek word that we should become becoming somewhat familiar with right now, both in our study on James and our study of uh, John. We've run into this word. It is telos, T-E-L-O-S. We've run into it in the verb form, teleao, and we've run into it in an adjectival form. But the word basically has the idea of completion. To bring something to completion. For Christ is the end. He is the end, completion, termination, or conclusion. Christ is the conclusion of the law. So with Christ, the law ends. Then we have a very important phrase for righteousness. It's an ace plus the accusative of reference, which indicates the law with reference to righteousness. Jesus Christ fulfilled all three sections of the Mosaic law because he is perfectly righteous. That qualified him to go to the cross. Because he was perfect righteousness, when he paid the penalty for our sins, the righteousness and justice of God, which comprised his holiness, looked down upon the cross and were satisfied. The word that is used in the Bible to describe this is propitiation. God the Father was propitiated by the work of Christ on the cross. So Christ is the end of the law with reference to righteousness because He satisfied all of the moral requirements and spiritual requirements of the Mosaic law. He is the completion of the law with reference to righteousness to everyone who believe 
Notice it doesn't say everyone who believes and obeys the law, everyone who believes and does good deeds, everyone who believes and continues to believe for the rest of their life, that's the lordship crowd, everyone who believes and accepts Jesus as Lord, it doesn't say any of that because the only condition is faith alone. So Christ is the end of the law with reference to righteousness. Now what happens at this point because all of human sin, and this is foreshadowing what we're going to be covering in much more detail over the next few weeks, all of human sin was imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. This is one of seven imputations in the Scripture. This is a judicial imputation where God the Father imputed legally all human sin to Christ on the cross. He did not become a sinner, but He carried in His body all the sins of the world. He was crushed for our iniquity, according to Isaiah 53. So every single sin committed in human history was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. That means that God the Father, in His omniscience, knew every single sin that would be committed in human history. And every single sin that is committed in human history is paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, there is no sin that you can commit that surprises God, that God was unaware of in eternity past, and that was not paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Because it was paid for in full on the cross, the issue no longer is payment for sin. That would be double jeopardy. So sin is no longer the issue. And this is something that many people get wrong, and you hear them spending hours and hours in evangelism uh, criticizing people for their sin and focusing on how they have to deal with their sin and all these other things, and they don't have to deal with their sin at all. Christ did. What they have to do is put their faith alone in Christ alone. So, the dynamics of of this verse foreshadow the whole doctrine of justification by faith because our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross. When we trust in Him, His perfect righteousness is then imputed to the believer so that the believer positionally has the righteousness of Christ. So here we can look at it this way. Here you are as a believer. Or use a box. You are in actuality minus R. But through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, you become plus R. That's what's credited to your account. The word imputation means to credit to something to someone's account. To credit a debt or or to have a credit or a debt uh, credited to that account or reckoned or applied to that account. You get something related to imputation in the mail every month. Your credit card bill. Have a list of the charges that have been imputed to your account on a monthly basis. And that is something that you have and you have to pay for that. Well, Christ did the payment for us and because of that, what is imputed to our account instead of the debt against us, which is our negative righteousness, we have a balance on the plus side, which is His perfect righteousness. And because God the Father looks down at us and sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, He therefore can bless us not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done and because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. The perfect righteousness of God, therefore, uh, approves of the perfect righteousness in us and therefore the justice of God can bless us. That's the basis for all blessing in the spiritual life. It's not your obedience. It's what Christ did. It's what you possess freely as a result of salvation, the imputation of perfect righteousness. 
And that's what this is referring to. Christ is the end of the law with reference to righteousness, and that righteousness goes to everyone who believes. So I have here four points of explanation, summarization of Romans 10.4. A, this is, remember, this is point two under the doctrine of spirituality, Mosaic law and spirituality. Point two was, therefore Christ is the end of the law for believers, and believers are not under the Mosaic law, Romans 10.4. Summary of Romans 10.4. A, Jesus Christ fulfilled every moral and spiritual requirement of the Mosaic law. He was perfect in every way, and thus he satisfied the perfect righteousness and justice of God. B, therefore, because he fulfilled the law, he is the end or completes all of the legal requirements of the law with reference to righteousness. B is, because he fulfilled the law in every jot and tittle, he is the end. That means he completes the legal requirements of the law with reference to righteousness. C, this perfect righteousness is now freely available to every human being without cost. This perfect righteousness is now freely available to every human being without cost. Jesus paid the price. We don't. Romans 3.22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith. Now, that's a very important clause and we're going to see it again in Galatians 2.16. Through faith is dia plus the genitive. D-I-A that is the Greek preposition. Now, when you have dia plus the genitive, it means through. It explains the instrument or means by which something is appropriated. If you have dia plus the accusative, it, as a preposition, grammatically, it can take either a genitive case or an accusative case. When, it, when the word that follows dia is in the genitive case, then it means through or means. When dia is followed by a word in the accusative, it is translated because. Now, you are not saved because of faith. That's wrong. It's not an accusative. It's a genitive. If, if you're saved because of what Christ did on the cross, and you appropriate that or make that yours by means of faith. Faith excludes all works. Faith is non-meritorious. Anyone can express faith. One of the biggest problems you run into, you talk to people and they say, well, so-and-so made a profession of faith, but it wasn't saving faith. As if there's two categories of faith. There's everyday faith and there's saving faith. And what happens almost exclusively when somebody says this is they will talk about saving faith as being a gift from God. In other words, you can't exercise this kind of faith unless God gives it to you, which means it's not from your volition. Okay? Saving faith is, uh, uh, that's usually what people talk about, but what we mean by faith is everyday faith. What distinguishes saving faith from non-saving faith is the object of faith. When the object is Jesus Christ alone, then we have salvation. If the object is the law or human good or works of any type, then there is no salvation. So you have to look at what is the object of saving faith. 
Romans 3.22 says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. So the righteousness of God goes to every believer, to all those who believe. So among the 40 different things that happen to you at the moment of salvation, one is that God the Father imputed to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that is your eternal possession. And that's the basis for your justification. Because God the Father looks down from heaven and sees that perfect righteousness in you. He is able, as the judge of the Supreme Court of Heaven, to make a legal decision. And He declares you to be justified. Not because of what you have done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, Jew and Gentile, for there is no distinction. Romans 5.18 says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That is the Adam's original sin. Because of Adam's disobedience as the representative of the human race, it was not Eve's decision that caused the human race to fall, it was Adam's decision, because he was the designated head, the one responsible. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, that is, the death of Christ on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. And D, under point two, therefore, the only requirement for salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. Another passage which shows that church-age believers are no longer under the law is Galatians 5.18, which says, But if you are led by means of the Spirit, you are not under the law. So, because Christ is the, uh, Christ fulfilled the law, point number one. Point number two, Christ is the end of the law. We can conclude that the believe, no believer in the church age is under the Mosaic law. Point number three, though no longer, no longer under the law, church age believers are not lawless or antinomian. We get accused of that quite frequently, that, that we just want to go sin as, free, as much as we want to. Paul responded to that, may it never be. I mean, obviously that is a, a false deduction that you can conclude. Uh, someone once said that you're not preaching free grace if your people aren't taking advantage of it out of ignorance every now and then. And I think there's a lot of truth in that because when you first understand that it doesn't matter anymore, Christ paid for it, the initial thing, well, it's all paid for, I'll just go do whatever I want to. That was the natural response that Paul dealt with in Romans 6.1. So when we're not under the law, the Mosaic law anymore, we are not lawless or antinomian. We have a new law, a higher law, a supernatural law, Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law, that is the Mosaic law, could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, because of the sin nature and human good, God did. God, that is, God does all the work. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that doesn't mean that he was a sinner, but he looked like a man, he had a human body, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How is it fulfilled in us? Because we possess the perfect righteousness of God. Christ fulfilled those demands, all of the righteous demands of the law. His righteousness is imputed to us because we possess his righteousness and we are in Christ we have fulfilled all of the spiritual and moral requirements of the Mosaic Law. In order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
So before salvation, we were the purpose of the law to the believer before before salvation is to demonstrate his total inability to please God and fulfill the requirements of the law. We learned that we cannot keep the law, but once we are in Christ, we're no longer under the law because we have the filling of the Holy Spirit and we walk by means of a higher law and a supernatural way of life, which brings us to point point number four. The new law is accompanied by a new commandment. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. This is the commandment. This is the means for the supernatural way of life. A supernatural way of life demands a supernatural means for accomplishing that way of life. It's not based on morality or good deeds. It's based on the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. Be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. It's the first power option in the spiritual life. The second is the Word of God. What are we filled with? We're filled with doctrine. We're filled by means of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it, who stores it in our soul, brings it to recall, helps us to see how to apply it. But we have to exercise our volition to apply it or to learn it, to be in Bible class, to learn it, to assimilate it into our thoughts and to apply it. Point number five, the purpose of this new law is to glorify Christ and to produce His character in believers by means of the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians 4.19. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. That is talking about the character of Christ that is formed in the believer as a result of first learning doctrine, transforming his mind, then applying it. That's the point. You have to apply it. As it transforms your mind, it transforms your character, and so what is revealed in you is the character of Jesus Christ. And that comes from the Holy Spirit, point number six. God the Holy Spirit is the one who glorifies Christ in the spiritual life. John 16, 24, Jesus said of the coming of the Holy Spirit, He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. And then in John 7, 39, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, that's yet future at that time. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ in your life. Okay, now that we have reviewed this and brought ourselves up to date, let's turn back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We have the background, we have the context. Paul is confronting Peter with his uh, defection from the grace position. Verse 15, to get context, Paul says to Peter, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. See, they, they, from their Jewish background, they view Gentiles as unclean lawbreakers. And then he makes one of the most profound statements in Scripture. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, we're going to spend some time in this verse to understand all of the dynamics here. But before we do that, we have to make sure we have a correct translation and understanding of this passage. Uh, Not that it is badly translated here, but just to give us a little fuller understanding and expansion of what is being said here. Paul begins with a conjunction of contrast and emphasis, which I think the New American Standard translates best is nevertheless. In other words, this is a point in contrast to what I said. There's something going on here. Nevertheless, we know something. Now, it translates the participle as knowing, which is not 
that accurate. Let's try to be a little more precise. What we have here is an adverbial participle. It is the, the perfect active participle of the Greek word oida, O-I-D-A, which has several meanings related to knowledge. It means to know, to understand, to perceive, to have the knowledge as to how to perform a particular activity or to accomplish some goal. So it differs from gnosko in that it, it emphasizes this idea of knowledge related to the performance of a particular activity. Now, grammatically, it's a participle. A participle is helps out your main verb. And when you have an adverbial participle, because it lacks an article, an adverbial participle, perfect participle, almost always is causal. That's a very important concept here. According to Greek grammar, when you have a perfect participle without the article which makes it adverbial, it almost always has a causal meaning. Therefore, it is best translated because we know. Now, that adds a whole new dimension to the opening of this verse. Nevertheless, because we know. Now, the reason we get the we is that the main verb, a little later on, is a third-person plural. So, Paul is talking to Peter, and he says to him, because we know something. We. We who? Who's he been talking about? Verse 15, we are Jews by nature. Nevertheless, we Jews know something. What is it that we know? We know back in Genesis 15:7 that we have learned that, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. That's what we learned from, from all of our uh, knowledge of the Old Testament. We know that, that Abraham was declared righteous by faith. He was justified by faith. So we know this principle. We know something. Now we go on with our exegesis and the next word in the Greek is the Hebrew word, I mean Greek word, hati. Rough breathing mark, H-O-T-I. Now, sometimes you don't even translate this word into English. Sometimes it introduces a direct quotation or an indirect quotation. Sometimes it has a causal idea. And other times it introduces a principle. And that's what's going on here. It's going to introduce a principle. And I think that if we were to get our, the best understanding of this, because we know colon. Because we know something. We know, and then you put a colon there, and then you give the principle. They know a principle of doctrine. A man is not justified by the works of the law. That's the principle that, that Jews know and have learned from the Old Testament. We know this principle, that a man is not justified on the basis of works related to the law. Why? The law didn't come until Moses some five or six hundred years after the death of Abraham. Yet Abraham was justified by faith. So we have a principle. A man is not justified by the works of the law. Well, what does this word justified mean? It comes from the Greek word verb dikai ao. D-I- K-A-I-O-O. And it means to... Well, it has a variety of meanings. It means to put right with, to cause someone to be in a right relationship with someone else. 
uh, it has a very legal connotation because it was often used in the courtroom to refer to technical legal procedures. And that is the background for much of what God says about salvation is this legal relationship between man and God. Man is viewed as a lawbreaker and God has supplied uh, legal justice for him. Now the word, the, that's the verb, the noun is dikaya sune, which has two meanings. One is righteousness and the other is justice. These are two closely connected terms. Same thing's true in the Hebrew, by the way. You have the word tzedek, uh, which is translated either justice or righteousness. There's only one word, and it depends on the context because there's such a close connection between the, the concepts of righteousness and justice. So nevertheless, we'll just translate it to be declared, because it's a legal term, to be declared righteous. That's the best way to understand justification, to be declared righteous. It's a legal concept, not an experiential concept. That's what's so important to understand. Because as a as salvation, you don't lose your sin nature. You're still a sinner. Everything an unbeliever can do, you can still do as a believer. The difference is that because you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you have been freed from the bondage to the sin nature. Romans chapter 6 says that as an unbeliever we are enslaved to the sin nature, but now we are no longer slaves to unrighteousness. We are to be slaves to righteousness. And as an unbeliever, all you can do is unrighteousness. No matter how good it is, no matter how altruistic or helpful or beneficial, it is still unrighteousness because it does not flow from the power of God the Holy Spirit. So let's translate this. Nevertheless, because we know a man is not declared righteous by the works of the law. And in the Greek, that phrase is important because it is anarthrous. That means it lacks the definite article. And we've studied this a little bit in our study of, uh, of James, I mean, of John in the first chapter of John, that when a, a Greek word lacks the article, it's not like the English. In the English, if you take away the definite article, take away the V, it becomes indefinite. It's just fluid. If you talk about the dog, you know you're talking about a specific dog. If you talk about the ball, you're talking about a specific ball. If you say a ball, it could be any ball whatsoever. Well, in the Greek, sometimes they left off the definite article in order to emphasize the quality of the particular object. So, when you lose the definite article here, you're emphasizing the quality of the noun. And so, works of the law is literally works of law. But the point is, by the absence of the article, we would still translate it into English with a definite article, but the Greek emphasizes the quality of these works. In other words, no matter, Paul very subtly, but a very strong point, by removing the article, is emphasizing the point that it doesn't matter how good our works are, no matter how much quality we may think they possess, they're nothing in God's eyes. That's the significance of the lack of this article. See, every single word or its absence in the Greek is important. God inspired the Word of God down to every single letter in the Scriptures. 
So the works of the law emphasize that no matter how good you may think your deeds are, they can never be good enough to measure up to the absolute righteousness of God. That's why it says in Isaiah, God said in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Nevertheless, because we know a principle, a man is not declared righteous on the basis of good deeds or the works of the law, but contrast, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And once again, we have that phrase we saw earlier in Romans, dia plus the genitive, D-I-A, which means through. Faith is always the channel by which we appropriate salvation. And then we have an objective genitive, which is an unusual construction, but it focuses on the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. But through faith in Christ Jesus. And then there is a shift in tone here. Nevertheless, because we know something, Peter, we as Jews know a principle the principle is that no man can ever be declared righteous on the basis of works, but only through faith in Christ. Even we, that is you and me, Peter, that's the we there, even we, you and me, Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus. Because we knew this principle, we did something. We believed. We trusted. Belief means to trust. It doesn't mean to commit your life to Christ. It doesn't mean to invite Jesus into your life. It doesn't mean to invite Jesus into your heart. It means to trust Christ as your Savior. It's faith alone. That's the meaning of trust. It's confidence. It's to rely exclusively on something. Jesus, at the point of salvation, is the one inviting us to accept Him. Inviting Jesus into our heart. That has to do with uh, the spiritual life, not salvation. Don't get confused on that. We may be justified by means of faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since, by the works of the law. Three times he makes this point. God the Holy Spirit does not want you to miss out on this. Repetition, repetition. Get the point. It's not by works of the law. Morality doesn't do anything for you. The spiritual life is beyond morality. Morality is for unbelievers. Morality is wonderful. Morality provides stability in a nation. But morality has no spiritual value. The spiritual life is beyond morality. It is a life that is produced exclusively by means of the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Since by means of the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay. Now that we have gone through this, let's review the corrected, expanded translation to make sure we understand the point. Because we, that is, Jews, from our knowledge that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we know something. We know a principle of doctrine that a person is not declared righteous from the source of his good deeds, but through the means of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And we, you and me, Peter, believed in Christ Jesus in order that we might be declared righteous from the source of faith in Christ and not from the good deeds we do. Because we know a principle. No human being will be declared righteous from the source of good deeds. Period. So if you're relying on anything good in your part to think that you've done something that somehow has impressed God, what the Scripture says is that nothing you can ever do will ever impress God. God knows you better than you know yourself. 
He knows how totally depraved you are. He knows every sinful thought, every sinful action. He's known about it from eternity past, so don't worry about shocking God because He's known every single sin for billions of years. And He paid for it completely on the cross. And that's the basis for our salvation. Well, now that we have exegeted the passage and we understand a little more about what it is saying, we have to try to understand the doctrines and concepts that are here. How does justification take place? What are the mechanics of justification by faith? See, what happens a lot of times in churches, pastors will go as far as I've gone, they'll teach a little bit about justification, that's by faith alone, and stop there. But people don't understand the dynamics that underlie justification. What has to happen for God to declare you to be righteous? When you understand that, it increases your appreciation as a believer for everything that God has done for you in salvation. Number two, it increases your understanding of why it is that you have eternal security, that your salvation is secure and you can do nothing to lose it because you did absolutely nothing to gain it. And I'll tell you that if you hear somebody say that you can lose your salvation, somewhere hidden in their theology is the assumption that you did something to be saved because you have to do something to keep your salvation. It's dependent upon you, your volition, your deeds, or something like that. So it's very important to take the time to break all of this down to understand the underlying dynamics. And like everything related to the gospel in Scripture, we, our starting point must be God. Never start with man. The starting point in understanding anything and everything is God and who He is and what He has said. We always begin with God for two reasons. First of all, you can't start with man because man is finite. He's limited. He has limited knowledge. He has, even with all the knowledge and the vast explosion of knowledge in just the last couple of decades, all of the accumulated knowledge of mankind over the last five or 6,000 years is analogous in proportion to God's omniscience, like one grain of sand compared to all the grains of sand on all the beaches throughout the world. So man's knowledge is so limited that when man tries to uh, base things just on, on his own personal knowledge or experience, there can always be another grain of sand that he discovers that completely contradicts what he thinks he knows already. That's the problem with rationalism and empiricism. There's always one more fact or two more facts that will completely change everything you've discovered so far. The only basis for absolute certainty in knowledge is the revelation of God. God being omniscient knows all the knowable. God being veracity is absolute truth so that what he communicates is absolute truth without error. The second reason we can't start with man is not only is his knowledge finite, but because he is a sinner, his knowledge is warped. His knowledge is always distorted by the human viewpoint frame of reference that he brings to the facts. So that when he sees that fossil lying out there in the strata and he comes to it with his warped view that there is no God and that everything happens by chance, he looks at that fossil and he automatically interprets it as evidence of eons of earth ages. And he doesn't understand the principle. So the fact is not really a brute fact. 
he's, he interprets it simultaneously with perceiving it. That's why sometimes you cannot convince an unbeliever of certain things is because their interpretation is so wrapped up with the fact itself that they can't see one thing from another. There's no objectivity there whatsoever. And this is because of sin. Inherent sin warps our perception of reality. The only solution is the grace of God. So we always start with God. Well, let's review the essence of God. Here we have the essence of God. God is sovereignty, which means He rules His creation. God is righteous. That means that He is absolutely perfect. The plus means that He has uh, He's absolute perfection plus R. He's just. That's the application of His righteousness. In all that God does, He operates on the basis of His righteousness and He is absolutely fair and correct in every decision He makes in relationship to His creatures. Third, God is love. This is the motivation of God. He loves not as we love. His love is different from our love. Our love is conditional. Our love is emotional. Our love shifts with the circumstances. God's love is perfect stability. It is not sentimental. It is not emotional. It is based on His knowledge and His reason, and therefore it is absolutely perfect and stable. God is eternal life. There's no beginning and no end with God. He's omniscient. That means God knows all the knowable. Nothing's ever going to surprise God. For all eternity, He's known all the knowable. He knows all the actual and all the potential. He's omnipotent. That means that God can do everything God intends to do to accomplish His purposes. Some people get wrapped around the axle trying to define omnipotence that, well, if, if um, God can do everything, can He make a round square? Don't ever get caught up in that kind of sophomore logic. Omnipotence does not mean that God can do everything or anything. God can do anything necessary to accomplish his goals. God cannot do anything that's illogical or irrational because it's impossible. Omnipresent. God is present to every aspect of his creation everywhere, all the time. There never is a time or a place that you can escape God. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. You can never escape the presence or the knowledge of God. You can't hide anything from God. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. God is immutable. That means God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. With God, there is no change or variation, not even a shifting shadow, James says. And then last, God is veracity. He is absolute truth. Whatever God says, we can rely on completely. Now, when we look at the essence of God, there are three characteristics that we want to isolate to understand the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone. These are righteousness, justice, and love. Together they comprise what I'll call the integrity of God. The integrity of God. I think integrity is a little more up-to-date word than the old words we use for holiness. Holiness is one of those um, uh, abstract religious words that's picked up a lot of um, excess baggage over the years. It's a little bit confusing, it's a little bit archaic, and not everybody understands what uh, holiness means. For some people, they think it means moral perfection. 
That's not what the word means because the noun form, the masculine noun form referred to the male prostitutes in the temples of Baal. Now, they weren't morally pure, were they? No, they weren't. Uh, the fe- feminine noun referred to the female prostitutes. The root word of kadash, the Hebrew word for holy, means to be set apart for the use of God. They were set apart for the use of their God through uh, the temple prostitution. So the basic point me- of, of, of uh, holiness really has to do more with, with uniqueness being set apart to God's service. Um, and that has to do with the concept of integrity. So the integrity of God is comprised of His righteousness, His justice, and His love. So let's begin by looking at these particular things. Now, when we talk about the attributes of God, we have to realize that all of them comprise the wholeness of God. Just as you have many different attributes and characteristics in your life that characterize you, they're not evident all the time, are they? In one situation, your honesty may be evident. In some other situation, uh, the fact that you're a hard worker and reliable may be evident. And your honesty is not an issue. It's not even apparent in that situation. So when God deals with us, no matter what the situation may be, in one, one circumstance, maybe veracity is the, uh, as the characteristic which is more obvious. In other circumstances, perhaps his sovereignty or his omnipotence as he controls and rules and reigns over, over human history. So different attributes apply at different times, but they never operate apart from all of the other attributes. There is an internal consistency between all of the attributes. So that when we come down and we talk about the righteousness, justice, and love of God, God's love does not operate apart from His righteousness. In fact, His righteousness provides a standard for the function and the motivation of His love. If God were not righteous, then his love would just be willy-nilly for everybody and there would be no standard to it whatsoever. If God were just righteous and had no love whatsoever, then he would be a very harsh, ruling God who, had, who in fact was not capable of relationship. So these three attributes characterize divine integrity and we'll begin by looking at the concept of God's righteousness and his justice. Turn with me now to Romans 1.17. Well, we're at a good stopping point right here as we get ready to look at the righteousness and justice of God. So why don't we conclude uh, this morning with a word of prayer and next time we'll come back and look at how divine righteousness and divine justice are related to one another, how they interact with divine love, and how all of that is important to understand, to realize to understand the doctrine of imputation. And if you don't understand the doctrine of imputation, you can't understand the doctrine of justification. So that helps you understand the picture. We have to understand God's integrity, His righteousness, justice, and love, how they work together, so we can understand what takes place with imputation. You have to understand imputation to understand justification. That's the flow. So we'll come back and look at that in more detail next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to examine this so important doctrine and of all that you have done for us in saving us. Jesus Christ said in his last words on the cross, it is finished. That means that nothing can be added to his work of salvation. We cannot help out by adding our works, our obedience, our sincerity, or any other human dynamic. Jesus paid it all. All we have to do is accept it as a free gift. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning 
who is not sure of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the time to tell you privately in their own soul that they accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's all that's necessary for them to say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. If they put their faith and trust in Christ alone, then they have eternal salvation. They can never lose it because they did nothing to gain it. The free, permanent gift. Now, Father, as we go throughout our week, we pray that you would continue to remind us of these things so that we can appreciate our so great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.